Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussion on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your host. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And we are excited today for two reasons in our episode. First, again, it is a live recording where hopefully you, the viewers who are currently watching the video on Facebook, will be able to interact with us, ask questions, and engage the topics. But also because we are joined today with a right reverend guest, Bishop Chad Jones, who is Bishop Coadjutor of the Diocese of the Eastern United States for the Anglican Province of America. If you haven't listened to his previous episode with us on The Sacramentalist, which is about Anglican orders, how they were right, good, and fully Catholic, you can check that out. It's episode 17. I would encourage you all, especially if you have um, perhaps some Roman friends who don't believe your priest has valid orders, go listen to that and set them straight. Well, today we are going to be talking about a fun subject, perhaps one that's a bit controversial, but need not be. We are going to be talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary, particularly her role in Anglicanism and in Catholic Christianity. And we're going to let the bishop lead the discussion. And after he's had uh, his say, maybe Father Wesley and I and the bishop will have some conversation. Then we want to turn to those who are viewing us live and see what questions and thoughts you have for the bishop. So first off, Bishop, welcome to the show again. Thank you. It is an honor to be with you both, Fathers. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to coming back for some time, and we discussed what would be a good and very thorough subject for our exploration and discussion, and Our Lady always seemed to come up in that conversation. So this is terrific, and thank you for the honor and the privilege of being back on The Sacramentalist. And we will certainly talk about the Blessed Virgin today. Absolutely. Well, we are always excited to have you on. So uh, let's just jump right into it. Bishop, what should we know about the Blessed Virgin Mary? Well, to get started, would it be all right for me to read to you something I wrote about this to an inquirer a few years ago? I actually had a question from a parishioner about the tradition regarding the Blessed Virgin and why Catholic Christians and why in particular would Anglicans venerate Our Lady. And I wrote as succinct a letter about this as I could. However, it takes a few minutes to read it, but I'd like to introduce the subject with this, if I may, and this will lay it all out for us as in terms of the tradition, the theological tradition, and the devotional tradition regarding the Blessed Virgin. Great. So I'll begin with that, if I may. The whole Catholic Church, East and West, honors the Mother of the Lord, not only with hymns and images in her memory, but in prayers which ask for her intercession in communion with the whole communion of saints. Some people have objections to the Church's honor rendered to the spotless mother of the Word made flesh, but Orthodox devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is Christological. It is Christ-centered, for Mary is the one in whom God has assumed human nature and become incarnate. And all honor properly given to Mary is in recognition of the glory of her divine Son, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word. Mary is the highly favored one, or full of grace, because she possessed within her womb grace himself, the person of God the Word, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, made man. 
There could be no more sublime a grace or virtue bestowed by God on any human being. As a result, Mary is the most graced human being who has ever lived. And Mary cooperates with the divine will in freely accepting the offer of God to become the Theotokos, the God-bearer, knowing all the difficulty, scandal, and pain that would first attend such a choice. Mary is the new and second Eve, reversing the disobedience of the first Eve because she was obedient to the will of God and freely consented to serve as the means by which God would become man for our salvation. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word, as we read in St. Luke 1.38. Although the Greek participle used in honor of Mary may not be unique in the New Testament lexicon, it is still the highest possible expression of veneration and honor, and one cannot get around the fact so easily. The word of the archangel honors Mary as the mother of the word incarnate, and so should we, following the angel's example. Our Lady herself prophesies that her role as the mother of God will place her in a unique and essential position in the economy of salvation, which position will be recognized by all Christians until the end of time. All generations shall call me blessed, St. Luke 1.48. Marian veneration, therefore, is a key aspect of the gospel, for it points directly to the mystery of the Incarnation. As St. Ambrose says, those who do not honor the mother will not adore the Son. All generations of the Holy Catholic Church have called the Holy Virgin blessed because she was chosen out of all the women who have ever lived to be the one through whom God would assume human nature and become true man and true redeemer. Anglicans, in common with Catholics of every age and clime, have always honored Our Lady as the agent of the Incarnation by reciting her song, The Magnificat, with love and devotion at the evening office. Mary is not honored or venerated strictly because of her own dignity, although she is the holiest and purest of saints and the chiefest of believers throughout salvation history. She is honored because of her unique relationship with Jesus Christ. The highest and greatest title and dignity of the Blessed Virgin is that of Mother of God, Theotokos, God-bearer. And whence is this to me that the Mother of my Lord should come to me? St. Luke 1.43. Mary is the birth-giver of God, the one who gave true human birth to him who is God. Mary does not generate or originate the divine nature, no, but she does give human flesh to God. That Christological mystery is the supreme cause for the honor and veneration extended to Our Lady. But the honor so rendered passes to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of Mary, who enabled her soul to magnify the Lord and her spirit to rejoice. To fail to call Mary the Mother of God and to honor her as such is to reject the divine revelation of scripture and tradition concerning the Incarnation. If Mary is not the God-bearer, then her Son is not God-made man, but is some lesser reality. Mary as Theotokos is the touchstone of Christian orthodoxy, that is, 
the church's faith in Jesus Christ, one divine person with two full, complete natures, human and divine. Marian veneration safeguards and secures the Christological orthodoxy of the Holy Catholic Church. Churches and individuals that fail to offer a proper honor and reverence to and for the person and the role of the Blessed Virgin usually lose their grip on the truth of the Incarnation. Mary always points to Jesus, and devotion offered to her is devotion always offered to the wonder of the Incarnation, which is in turn offered to the Incarnate God. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Jesus Christ is God, Mary is his mother, therefore Mary is the mother of God. To refuse to call Mary the mother of God is to refuse to call Jesus Christ God, or so to separate the divine and human natures in our Lord as to destroy the Incarnation. Nestorius of Constantinople refused to call Mary the mother of God because he believed heretically that Jesus was two persons in one body. Nestorius held that our Lord was a God-possessed man, a saint, a human person named Jesus of Nazareth, possessed by a divine person, the Eternal Son. And hence, Nestorians said that Mary could not have given human nature to be assumed by God in person, hypostatically, in a hypostatic or personal union. Now, Protestants who claim they accept the dogmatic decrees of Ephesus and Chalcedon but inevitably wind up rejecting them because of a practical refusal to pray and live in the light of the conciliar tradition, this is a problem. Lip service can be given to ecumenical councils, but in practice they can be failed uh, in application to the faith and the worship of their ecclesiastical bodies. It should be pointed out that the prayer of the angelic salutation, Hail Mary, full of grace, is scripture. Let's repeat that. The Hail Mary is Holy Scripture, St. Luke 1.28. So opposition to the prayer Hail Mary is tantamount to opposition to the Word of God itself. The first part of the phrase is purely from the Bible. The Church honors Our Lady, but never adores her. A careful distinction must always be made between dulia, which is service, veneration, honor, given to God's friends, the saints, which honor is relative and secondary, and then adoration, worship, latria, which is only given to God alone. Only the divine nature receives divine worship. It does not and cannot distract from the love and worship of the Blessed Trinity, rightly to honor and hold in esteem God's greatest masterpiece and work of grace his greatest work of creation, the mother of Jesus Christ. To love and honor the mother of the Lord is to fulfill the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. Mary is the mother of the church, the spiritual mother of redeemed humanity. Son, behold thy mother, St. John 19. Our Lady is the mother of all the living in Christ, the woman whose seed has crushed the serpent's head, Genesis 3. She is worthy of our liturgical veneration, reverence, and respect. So there's a basic introduction to Marian theology, <laughs> or Mariology, if you will. 
not Mariolatry. That does not exist for an Orthodox Catholic, but the honoring of the Blessed Mother. So a basic introduction for our discussion. Can I, can I start by asking a question uh, about something that you said? <clears throat> so you called her the spotless Virgin Mary. And so I'm wondering what exactly you mean by that. Aha. Well, the ancient Christian tradition is clear that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the prototypical Christian. So God does for Mary what she does for every Christian. She is the image of the church, the icon of the church. She's the prototype of the church. And therefore, when we refer to the spotless Blessed Virgin or the spotless Mother of God, we're referring to her liberation from sin and its consequences. Now, for Anglicans, there's no dogmatic teaching about this issue. Regarding the sinlessness of Mary or how that comes about, we would call that a theologumenon, that is a theological opinion, a pious belief. However, there is Catholic consensus for this tradition that goes back to the early centuries of the Church. And in fact, the Fifth Ecumenical Council of Constantinople II, that was in 553 AD, it says that not only was Mary ever virgin, it says that Mary was freed from the power of sin. So all ancient Christians believed, and the tradition still believes, that the Blessed Virgin Mary was liberated, was freed from sin. How that comes about is a mystery. Uh, we would not say that's de fide, that's not a dogmatic revelation from God, but it is part of what we might call the interior tradition of the Church, and it's lived out in our prayer and our worship. There are various theories as to how God freed his mother from the power of sin. Uh, the latest version of that is the Immaculate Conception in the Roman tradition. Uh, that's comparatively late in Christian history and comparatively novel. When I gave an address to the parish of St. Barnabas by YouTube the other day, I talked a little bit about the Feast of the Annunciation. An earlier view is that of St. Gregory of Nazianzus, who maintained that Our Lady was purified from all original and actual sin at the Annunciation, when the Holy Ghost overshadowed Our Lady and made her the temple of God and the dwelling place of God in the Incarnation, God freed her, cleansed her, and purified her from sin. This is my personal view, and that is a view that is held by many in the Eastern Orthodox churches. Now, some Eastern Orthodox theologians actually maintain, like Bulgakov, that she was purified at Pentecost. So she waited all the way until Pentecost to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that fresh and powerful way and received the effect of Christian baptism at that time. But I think that's a minority report. <laughs> I don't think that's <laughs> consistent with the early church. Oh, man, uh, what a good movie. Oh, that's a great Sorry. movie. So, um, so <laughs> yes. Uh, Oh, I was going to say, so maybe we just set the landscape. I think you've touched on all of these almost, except for one. Um, you know, there are four traditional Marian dogmas, if we're going with, we'll say, uh, the Roman tradition. Uh, I think virgin birth slash divine motherhood is kind of the first. And if you're an Anglican or you're a Christian who's at all trying to participate in the patristic church, this is clearly defined, clearly accepted. She is Theotokos. She gave birth to Jesus. 
bada beam, bada boom, we're done, right? Um, the, the next is perpetual virginity. And now this is one, for some reason, that a lot who have been raised in more Protestant contexts struggle with, even though all the Reformers agreed that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She was virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. Um, so we'll stop there. We've got two more to go, but can you talk to us about the perpetual virginity? Absolutely. I always like to say that the onus of responsibility for rejecting the perpetual virginity would be on the individual Christian, because this particular dogma of the faith in the early church, it is a dogma of the Fifth Ecumenical Council in Constantinople II, which declares that the Blessed Mother is A.E. Parthenos, that is, ever virgin. Now, again, Anglicans don't make this a litmus test of Catholic orthodoxy per se, because the Anglican mantra is that whatever we believe has to be proven by Holy Scripture. Certainly, it has to be compatible with Holy Scripture. We don't put the perpetual virginity on the same level as the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Resurrection. But it is an ancient tradition of the Church. It's an ancient teaching and doctrine. And the vast majority of Christians throughout all of Christian history have believed it, including all the magisterial reformers of the 16th century. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Huldrych Zwingli, all believed in the perpetual virginity. Zwingli did. And, and then you have uh, John Wesley believed in it, you know, later on in the 18th century. So what is the perpetual virginity? Why would this be important for Christians? The best answer I've ever heard in my life to this is a true story from the life of Father Alexander Schmemann. Now, Father Schmemann was teaching a class on dogmatics one day in the seminary, and a young man stood up and said, we don't need to believe in this perpetual virginity. And Father Schmemann responded with great anger, what? Do you think the Blessed Virgin was bored with God? And that sort of made the point. So, <laughs> was Mary bored with God? Did she have That's to have funny. something else in her life? Well, I mean, what, what is the theological or the dogmatic meaning behind it? It means that Jesus is truly God. Because Our Lady is a virgin before, during, and after the miraculous and virginal conception and birth of Christ, her perpetual virginity indicates the divinity of her Son. The Church has always understood that this is an ancient belief that has been given to the Church to show us that Mary was uniquely consecrated to God as the mother of Jesus Christ. And the fact that she preserved her virginity, her integrity, through the conception and birth of Christ demonstrates not only the miraculous nature of Christ's conception and birth, but also the divine personhood of Jesus, his identity as God the Son. So that's why you have the ancient icon. I'm using the word ancient a lot today. All this goes back to the patristic consensus of the early church. So you have the icon of the Blessed Mother, and she has the three stars, either on her clothing or about her, and that goes back to the earliest fathers of the church. In fact, you know the earliest icon we have of the Blessed Virgin is in the catacomb of St. Priscilla in Rome, and there is a star above her. It's the star of Bethlehem, and she's she has given birth to the Christ child. It's an image of mother and child with a star. That star represents Jesus as God, but it also represents the virginity of the mother. 
So the three stars before, during, and after the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Blessed Virgin Mary is a perpetual testimony to the divinity of her son in the preservation of her virginity. And this is why, for example, in the creeds, well, there are, there are many Christians who will say, I don't believe in the perpetual virginity that's not in the Bible. Well, actually it is. And we can look at St. John 19 and see very clearly that, in fact, Our Lady is perpetual virgin. But in the creeds, let's take the Apostles' Creed. That goes back to 150 A.D., and it calls Mary the Virgin Mary, the Virgin. That's a title. That's a formal title. If Helvidius or Jovinian were right in the 5th century about the fact that Mary was not a virgin, then the creed would say something like, Mary who was a virgin, past tense. No, the title is permanent, the Virgin Mary. We, we pray that in the Apostles' Creed, and we pray that in the Nicene Creed. That is a permanent title of Our Lady, and that permanent title indicates the perpetual virginity. But let's go to the scripture for just a second in St. John chapter 19. Our Lord is crucified, and he is on the cross, and Our Lady and St. John go to him, and what do we see happen? We see our Lord Jesus commend the Blessed Mother to the care of St. John, the beloved disciple. Now, if Mary had biological sons and daughters who were the biological brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Jewish tradition would require them to take care of Mary. It's called the goal, the goal tradition, and we read about that in the Old Testament. So the Jewish custom would have been for one of the brothers and sisters of Jesus to care for the Blessed Mother. That did not happen. Mary was commended to the care of John, and John is not necessarily a blood relative. Perhaps he was a distant cousin. It's possible. But he was certainly not a blood brother or blood sis, a blood brother of Jesus. I mean, he was not a, he was not a, a child of Mary and Joseph. So we see in St. John chapter 19 that our Lord had no bio biological brothers and sisters. Yes. So if, if this were the case, then John would uh, not care for the Blessed Mother. What we would see in a normal situation in, in first century Palestinian Judaism, we would see a relation of our Lord a brother, a sister, care for Mary, but that did not happen. So the, the old goal tradition would have mandated that. So in other words, very, to put it very simply, our Lord Jesus did not have biological brothers and sisters, because if he had, they would have been required by Jewish custom to care for Mary after Christ's death. Yeah, I think another great theological explanation is is in our in our modern day and age, uh, there seems to be a concern that if Mary couldn't have had other children, she was deprived of some great thing called sex. And so if she remains a virgin her whole life, then how dare God keep her, which we live in this like sexual liberation culture, from engaging as something so great. But I think as, as Bible-believing Christians, we have to recognize what Paul teaches in First or sorry, in Ephesians chapter five, that marriage is this mystical picture between Christ and the church. It has to do with union with Christ. And so even sex within marriage points towards that reality. 
And so if Mary, in a way beyond what any of us have ever or, or has yet experienced until, I guess, uh, theosis is complete in, in the new heavens, she has participated in the archetype, in the reality. She does not need the shadow. That, and I think that makes a lot of sense when we think about a theological reason why the perpetual virginity gives a, a witness, as you said, to the divinity of Christ and to what went on in the Incarnation. Yes. Oh, definitely. And we live today in such a sex-saturated culture, which tends to divorce sexuality from the other goods of marriage. And we read in the Book of Common Prayer preface, say, for example, in the 1662 prayer book and the marriage service, that there are several goods of marriage. And of course, sexual conjugal union between husband and wife is one of those goods, along with, of course, the procreation of children, the nurturing of them in the faith, the mutual benefit of husband and wife, the unitative aspect of marriage, the good of society at large, the avoidance of sin. All of these are laid out from St. Paul and other New Testament sources, and there's a beautiful balance there. So sexuality cannot be divorced from the, the vocation of holy matrimony in, in all of its other goods for which God has ordained the sacrament of matrimony. But Mary stands out in such a remarkable way because of her virginity as both mother of the Word incarnate, the mother of God, a true human mother, as virgin, and therefore someone who was consecrated to an angelic life in this sense. We think of what our Lord says about the next life when he was asked the question, what's going to happen about marriage in the world to come? And he says that in the world to come, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but we will be like the angels. There will be an angelic life, a heavenly life in which love is perfected, and the physical expression of love in this world conveyed in a sexual manner is raised to a higher degree, to a supernatural life in heaven, in glory. So Mary is an eschatological figure in this sense. Right. She points beyond this world to the next and to the life of the resurrection, even in her own earthly life. But the, the virginity of Mary before, during, and after Christ's conception and birth remains forever a testimony to God's intervention in our world, in the human family, in the human race. It also points beyond very much her, herself to the reality of the Incarnation. Was, was Our Lady married? And the answer to that is yes. She was certainly married to St. Joseph. But, you know, the early Church's most common view on that was that St. Joseph had been previously married. He was a much older man. St. Epiphanius says that he was married and he had a family. He had children. He had sons and daughters from his first wife, and, sh and she died. And he was a much older man, and when he was espoused to the Blessed Virgin Mary, he was espoused to her in order that he might be the protector, the guardian, and the defender of the Blessed Mother and her divine son. And therefore, he became sort of the patriarch of Christian families and the patron saint of the home and of Christian marriage and Christian home life in a very real way. But he defended and protected the virginal integrity of the Blessed Mother. It was a unique marriage, certainly. <laughs> Can you imagine having God in your home in such a direct way in the Incarnation? It was unique, but it was a real marriage in that sense. But it points to a higher marriage, 
which is the marriage of Christ and the church, precisely. And that is what St. Paul refers to in Ephesians 5. And so all of that beautiful marriage imagery is in a microcosmic way experienced in the Holy Family, and it's experienced on a much much wider scale, much wider way in the church. Definitely. Great. Wonderful. All right. One quick uh, one quick follow up to that. We got a question on the Facebook uh, feed that I think is pretty interesting. Um, so to the point about, and this is uh, from a friend of the show named John. Um, he says to the point about John being given care of Mary. Couldn't Jesus have been superseding the old law by giving her to John, making the point that his church is his new family over even his blood kin? Ah, it's a great question. I think that he does. I think it's sort of simultaneous. In this case, he's doing both things. He both fulfills the law and he transcends it at the same time. So you think about the fact that the beloved disciple, St. John, is representative of the church. And in fact, as St. John writes his gospel, the fourth gospel, he narrates it in such a way that he's always referring to the, the account of salvation as the new people of God. And he really represents the church in this way. The beloved disciple represents you and me. He represents the Christian. He's sort of every man in the story, if you will. He's every Christian. And I think he's doing both things. Our Lord is doing both. He honors and respects the tradition of the Jewish law and the Jewish customs. He doesn't destroy them, but he fulfills them, and he brings them to perfection. So I would say here it's not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and. I think he's doing both. But I guess I, I would probably be a bit uncomfortable to say that Jesus, uh, in some ways, supersedes the Old Testament law in this moment in the sense of saying there are physical brothers and sisters somewhere, but he disregards the Mosaic law and gives his mother to John. Uh, I think that uh, while Jesus challenges the Pharisees' understanding of the law throughout the Gospels, he never breaks the Mosaic law. And that, in my mind, would be a point of breaking the Mosaic law. Agreed. And if you think about it, what does our Lord say of himself? I've come not to destroy the law, but, but to fulfill. So our Lord, in fact, how does he save us? He saves us by his perfect obedience. It is Christ's will, which is the means of our redemption. And his will was perfectly obedient, not only to the will of his father, but to what had been revealed before his coming. So our Lord never broke the law. He took it and he perfected it, and he showed its true meaning in the perfection of his obedience. Very true. One, can I ask one more follow-up that we got on Facebook as well, and then we can move on to a different topic? Um, so uh, Chris asks, uh, what about Matthew one twenty-five, which is where uh, the evangelist says uh, that Joseph took Mary as his wife but knew her not until she had borne a son— and he called his name Jesus. And of course, Protestants will often invoke that verse to say the until there implies that their marriage was consummated uh, later on. Um, so how would you respond to that passage? Great question, too. Wonderful questions. Uh, you know, when it comes to the faith of the church and to the gospel, there's no such thing as a bad question. <laughs> At least I don't think so. All questions are great questions. And this is another one. Until is a Hebraism. If you look at the context, you'll see that the word until is used in many narratives in the Old Testament, which aren't necessarily a terminus. 
So the term, the language is used until, but that doesn't indicate automatically that there are other biological brothers and sisters of Jesus. The phraseology is very interesting. It's a Hebraism. For example, if you look at St. John chapter 2, you remember the story of the wedding in Cana. There's another Hebraism there. Jesus turns to his mother and, and says to her, what do you have to do with me? Or what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. That's a, another Hebraism. And they creep into the New Testament Greek text. The literal Greek is what to me and to you. Well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense unless you understand the Old Testament. That's a Hebraism. Now, it's translated in different ways. So the word until characterizes the fact in, in Matthew, for example, what is that passage really saying with the Hebraism? It's saying that Christ is the fulfillment of the redemption mandate in the Old Testament. Remember that the firstborn son of every Jewish household had to be redeemed unto the Lord. So that language points back to even the book of Exodus, and it speaks about the firstborn son being redeemed to the God of Israel. It does not automatically indicate brothers and sisters of Jesus, and the Catholic tradition, going back to the earliest centuries, has always understood it that way. Yeah, great question. There's a, I think it's um, in 1 Timothy 4... 13 Paul says until I come attend to the public reading of scripture to preaching and teaching so like the question would be should they stop doing those things when Paul gets there or I think it's 2 Corinthians you know Christ must reign until all things are placed under his feet well does he stop reigning after he puts all things under his feet it's a tricky yeah. word isn't it or think of St Matthew 28 lo I'm with you always even uh, unto or until the end of the world well does that mean the gospel isn't going forward well of course it is so we, we have to take these contextually. That's right. That's good. Well, uh, shall we move on? Um, so that was the second, quote-unquote, Marian dogma, perpetual virginity. Uh, you did mention the Immaculate Conception as a way of describing uh, a, a broader dogma, which is the, I guess we would just call it the sinlessness of Mary, uh, which was received in the patristic church. But I guess maybe one of the questions I would have is, the, as the Immaculate Conception stands, do we see that as, a, as something that is rooted in patristic theology, or is it something that makes sense of the Incarnation? Like, what is going on with the actual definition, Roman definition of the Immaculate Conception? Anything you can add to that, Bishop? Thank you, Father. That's, that's terrific. Well, let's talk just a little bit about the Immaculate Conception. It is a doctrine that arises out of the Augustinian theory of original sin. And as such, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception has more to do with the doctrine of sin than it does about the person of our Lord's mother. Now, the idea was first proposed in the early Middle Ages, and it is a scholastic doctrine that seeks to address the fittingness of Mary as mother of God and as the agent of the Incarnation. We see that in the Middle Ages there were theologians of the Franciscan order who promoted this doctrine and offered great eloquence in their defense and understanding of it. We think of St. Bonaventure, for example, and Duns Scotus. These were theologians, very articulate, very eloquent, 
who defended the view of the Immaculate Conception as being fitting for the Mother of God from a philosophical and moral perspective. The difficulty with the Roman dogma of the Immaculate Conception is that there is no clear teaching on this doctrine in the patristic corpus or consensus for the first nine centuries. There are many fathers of the church, St. Andrew of Crete, for example, who write beautiful hymns and offer very expressive sermons regarding the sinlessness of Mary. But in no case do they indicate that Mary was freed from original sin at the instant of her own conception in the womb of St. Anne. In fact, we have no such explicit reference to that idea, either in Scripture or in early tradition, for the first millennium. In fact, there's very little that can be said about it in the first millennium, either in the East or in the West. Now, there is an ancient feast of the conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary that goes back to around the 7th or the 8th century in Constantinople. And the conception of Mary is held to be holy, as is the conception of St. John the Baptist, for example, of which we read in the New Testament and the birth of St. John the Baptist. Now, this feast in Constantinople, which honors the conception of the Virgin Mary as being holy, but not necessarily immaculate or free of sin, uh, you, you can see that transferred over to England. And England picks up this feast of the conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. But there was never any dogmatic content to this feast in terms of what, what Pope Pius IX would teach in 1854. All Anglicans understand that the Roman dogma promulgated in 1854 by Pope Pius IX is not for us a dogma. It is not part of divine revelation. The most we could say about that particular doctrine is that it's a pious opinion. But I, I would go a little bit farther to say that it's problematic. Here's what's problematic with it. If you accept the Immaculate Conception, then you have to accept St. Augustine's theories and teachings on original sin as being exclu exclusively true. St. Augustine taught original guilt, the idea that the guilt of Adam is transmitted in a sexual, generative way down to posterity from Adam and Eve forward. Also, if you think about the Immaculate Conception, what does it actually say? It says that for the worthy conception and birth of Jesus Christ, the Blessed Virgin Mary was freed from all taint of original sin at the moment of her conception in anticipation of the merits and work of Jesus Christ. So God applied the work and merits of our Lord to Mary at the instant of her conception in the womb of St. Anne so that she could be the, the worthy mother of the Redeemer. Well, why didn't God do that for St. Anne? Or why didn't God do that for King David? Or why didn't God do that for Abraham? It proposes a reduction to absurdity on the, the philosophical level. This, this is one of the theologically problematic aspects of it. Another theologically problematic point of view is that it separates Our Lady from the Old Testament. Uh, one of the, the glories of, of divine revelation is that Mary is the greatest person ever to come out of the Old Testament before Jesus. 
She is the mother of the Messiah. That is the whole goal and the purpose of Israel's creation and being brought into existence, was ultimately to bring forward the Messiah. Mary is the virgin daughter of Jerusalem. Mary is the virgin daughter of Zion. She is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Covenant, and in her person, Israel is truly fulfilled because she will be the mother of the Messiah, and through her, God is incarnate, and Israel is perfectly accomplished in her divine son. So the Immaculate Conception seems to remove Mary from the course of the human race and from the people of Israel and all the saints of the Old Testament, for none of these people received an Immaculate Conception. I could go on and on with this subject. Yeah, I'm just bringing right. up some of the difficulties, but you can right. see they are difficulties. And That's please right. remember that St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bernard of Clairvaux both rejected the Immaculate Conception. So it can't be a dogma for us, because you can't prove it from Scripture, and it's not clearly expressed in the Bible, and the Eastern Orthodox churches have never accepted it. Um, I have a quick question about uh, another kind of disagreement with it that I think is probably prevalent in more reform circles, but also uh, in the writings of uh, Thomas Wynandy, um, who's a Roman Catholic. And of course, in his book, in the second or third printing, he did have to issue a statement basically saying he does, in fact, believe in the Immaculate Conception. But his argument, uh, yeah, it's sort of, yeah, quotes, air quotes. But his argument would seem to me to say that Jesus needs to inherit our flesh in order to redeem us. That which has not been redeemed or assumed cannot be redeemed. The Immaculate Conception seems to have Jesus inheriting something other than our flesh as it is. So I'm curious, do you think that's a, a solid disagreement or, or are there problems with that as well? Uh, I, I think that's exactly the point. I think that's exactly the point. The Immaculate Conception would render the human nature that our Lord takes from his mother in some respect different from our own. If we think about it, what does the Lord Jesus do in his virginal conception and birth? He takes from Mary our human nature, our mortal flesh. And he recreates human nature in the womb of Mary. Mary is the new garden of paradise. Mary is the new Eve. And from the new Eve and the new garden of paradise comes the new Adam. But there has to be the continuity of our human mortal flesh that Christ assumes a mortal flesh identical to our own with the exception of sin. The only difference between the human nature of Christ and our human nature upon his conception in the womb of Mary is sin. And I think that the immaculate conception of Mary in the womb of her mother sort of intervenes in a, in a way that seems to change the human nature that's being assumed, if that makes sense. Yes. I think that's problematic. Mm, that's good. Well, shall we move on to the, f the fourth and final quote-unquote Marian dogma? And that's the assumption. And uh, we did get a question on Facebook. And so as you are discussing uh, the assumption, Bishop, here is a, a question that I think relates to it. Someone says, this is John again, I have heard from a Roman Catholic friend that Mary is the Queen of Heaven described in Revelation. I have not heard this from any Anglican slash Protestants. Is that something that is biblically sound? And that relates directly to the assumption, so I just ask in your discussion, address John's question. 
Yes, thank you. That's that's also wonderful. What about Revelation 12? We have the woman clothed with the sun, with the 12 stars about her head, and the moon under her feet. And all the early church fathers saw in this figure both the Blessed Virgin Mary and Israel. We have the 12 tribes of Israel with the 12 stars, and the church is the fulfillment of Israel. We see the church represented here, the uh, the fulfillment of the Old Testament people of God in the New Testament Israel, which is the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. But you also have the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, because the 12 stars are, are the 12 apostles, and she is caught up to God. So the early fathers also identified this figure in Revelation 12 as the mother of God. Why? Well, at the end of chapter 11, you see the Ark of the Covenant is up in heaven, and then immediately after you see the Ark of the Covenant reigning gloriously in heaven, all of a sudden this apparition of the woman appears. Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. She is the temple and the throne of God. In her womb, God took his dwelling place. She is the Ark of the Covenant. As in the Old Testament, God put into the Ark the tablets of the law, the manna, the rod of Aaron. So the Ark of the New Covenant is Mary, who is the Theotokos. And what does she contain? She contains God in her womb. So Mary is the fulfillment not only of the biblical image of the Queen Mother that we see throughout Israel, uh, various monarchs like David, but you see the Ark of the Covenant. Mary is the Ark of the Covenant, and she is the woman clothed with the sun. So why would Christians historically believe in the assumption or the Dormition. Okay, this is a little bit different from the Immaculate Conception. Immaculate Conception, the very specific dogma defined by the Bishop of Rome, uh, Pius IX, that's a very late medieval theological opinion that grew in popularity and in authority within the Roman Communion and was eventually promulgated as a dogma in 1854. The Assumption or Dormition is an ancient doctrine. Like the Divine Maternity, like the Virginal Conception and Birth of Christ from Mary, like the, uh, uh, the even the Sinlessness of Mary, which was universally believed uh, certainly by the time of the Cappadocian Fathers in the 4th century. So it is with the Dormition or the Assumption. This has a universal consensus in the undivided Church by the 6th or the 7th century. You have beautiful sermons preached by St. Germanus of Constantinople, by St. John of Damascus, about the Mother of God experiencing in a foretaste, in an anticipation, what all Christians will experience on the last day. I just came back from Israel a month ago before coronavirus shut everything down, and if you go to Israel today, to, the, uh, to Gethsemane, you will see the Church of All Nations, the Church of the agony of Christ in the garden. And next to it is the tomb of the Virgin Mary. And if you walk down a great flight of steps down to the subterranean church, you will go into it and under a little chapel, you will see the tomb of Mary. And it's empty. And the early Christians understood that it was empty. There are no relics of the Blessed Virgin, never have been. So that's one of the reasons why early Christians clearly understood that this had happened. And there is a consensus about it. But this is not unique. Enoch 
was translated and walked with God, was no longer on the earth. Elijah was assumed into heaven on a chariot of fire. And so the idea of an assumption or a translation into heaven is biblical, and it's found in the Old Testament. From the early Christian tradition, it's understood that Christ would not want the flesh of his own mother, which is his own flesh, to be corrupted by death. And so it was that in a mysterious way, the Blessed Virgin was taken in her physical body, that very flesh which was given to God in the Incarnation, and she was taken to be with her Son in heaven. But beyond this, a more, a more uh, poignant aspect to it, or shall we say a more intensely Christological aspect to it, is that because Mary is the image of the Church, what happens to her happens to us. Mary was freed from the power and the effect of sin by the Holy Spirit. She received the effect of Christian baptism, whether it was in the womb of her own mother, St. Anne, or rather at the Annunciation. Mary was freed from the effect of sin and given the grace of Christian baptism. And Mary was given the beauty, the glory of the resurrection. And we too will inherit the glory and the beauty of the resurrection at the last day, at the general judgment, on the day of resurrection. And Our Lady experienced it by anticipation as a sign of the Church's future glorification. Now, if we want to get really catty about it, we could say that Mary was raptured, and the Church will be raptured at the last day. Now, we don't believe in the rapture. The rapture is not a biblical doctrine, per se, of course. It just comes from the word raptura in Latin, to be caught up. Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says that at the end of the world, the church is going to be transfigured, and the church is going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, which is the great triumphal procession that welcomes Christ back to inaugurate the end of all things, the telos, the eschaton, the parousia. Mary goes before us, and she experiences this in advance of us as a sign of the coming resurrection at the last day. This is Orthodox and Catholic tradition. Uh, all Catholic Christians historically believe in the Dormition or the Assumption. All Catholic Christians believe in the freedom of Mary from sin, whether it is by the catharsis at the Annunciation or by the newfangled Immaculate Conception. One way or the other, we all believe it. So all of these fall within the realm of Catholic consensus. Anglicans don't have to believe it, but it's, it's definitely a pious opinion. And to the, the question of Queen of Heaven, I think that some people get nervous about that because it makes it sound like Mary somehow co-reigns with God the Father and Jesus is left off to the side. But I've heard it explained well that in Jewish tradition, the Queen Mother had a place of honor. And so just, there are different types of queen, and maybe because we live in America, we don't really understand royalty as much as some people else in the world. And so this concept of calling Mary a queen of heaven does not mean that she is in some way equal with God. She's not. She's a creature. But it is an, it is an honorary title. And the fact that she wears a crown uh, in Revelation 12 is proof of this. So I And I've, as I heard one person say it, how come everyone gets a crown at the end of the world but Mary? So we all, right, we all get to co-reign with Christ is kind of the promise. But it seems as if we're scared of... Um, of uh, 
of extending that to the Blessed Virgin. But that's to answer kind of John's question that I think it is a, a good, a good uh, image of what is going on there, especially when you see in Mary the fulfillment of the church. Yes, and she has that crown in Revelation 12. The crown of 12 stars is a real crown, a, a symbolic crown, of course, in, the, in the, the apocalyptic imagery of Revelation. But the Blessed Virgin Mary is queen because Jesus is king. What she has inherited is what we will all inherit. We remember those who cast their crowns. We remember the elders who cast their crowns before the throne in the book of Revelation, in the resurrection, in the resurrection life, in the glory of the world to come, in the age of the world to come. We'll all have a crown, and we'll be joining Mary, whose crown was given a little bit before ours, but we'll be just with her and like her in glory. She is the exemplar. She is the prototype. She is the image, the foretaste of what happens to all human beings in Christ. That's right. Yes. Well, I think that kind of brings the discussion of theology to a close. Anything you want to add, Father Wesley? Well, there is one question from the Facebook uh, live stream that I think is good uh, from James. He says, uh, because I think in your last answer, Bishop, you mentioned that Mary is uh, the greatest person. Um, So how does that fit? He wants to know with Matthew 11, 11, where Jesus says that among those born of women, there was no one greater than John the Baptist. Aha! Well, John the Baptist belongs to the old dispensation. We might say that he was the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament, and he was the first prophet of the New Testament. In an ontological way, we can say that Mary is the highest human person, because Jesus is not a human person. Jesus is a divine person with a human nature. John the Baptist is elevated as the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament. And surely we can say with our Lord, and we must say, of those born of woman, none was greater than John the Baptist. This is particularly true as the fulfillment and the completion of the Old Covenant. But then we remember that he who is uh, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Our Lord goes on to say, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Our Lord loves to speak with riddles sometimes. (laughs) So this is a riddle, and we can sort of sort out the riddle. John the Baptist is the highest and the greatest of all the prophets of the old dispensation, the old covenant, the old age. But he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John because he has access to the glory of the incarnation of the word and the grace of the the salvific word of the gospel, the life of the church and the sacraments. And we remember that John the Baptist did not have access to those things. But Mary stands out as the highest human person in the order of grace because of her unique vocation as Theotokos, as God-bearer, as mother of God. And she is full of grace. And that is never said of any other human being other than Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. Now, he is full of grace and truth. Mary is called full of grace. It's interesting, isn't it? It is. That's a great response. Um, Anything else, Father Wesley, that you feel we should add? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Anything uh, before we move on from theology? any, Any final remarks, Bishop? Well, this is just so much fun. I could do this all day. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This is this is yeah. terrific. This is awesome, as they say. We might we might hold you to that. Well, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> all right. Well, let's talk. Um, 
let's talk devotion. I, I think that you've, um, you've touched on this, but maybe if uh, just to have it kind of spoken in one spot, let's ask how can we practice devotion to Mary and why is it so important? Devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, as we began in our conversation, is centered on Christ. So when we have devotion to her, when we ask for her prayers, when we commend ourselves and trust ourselves to her intercession, what we are really doing is acting as members of the family, as members of Christ's mystical body, as members of the communion of saints, in such a way that we are joining with our elder members in heaven asking for their prayers, and of those elder brothers and sisters in heaven that we call the saints, the Blessed Virgin Mary is unique because of her proximity to God, her closeness to God, her advancement in the way of holiness in which she achieved the highest level of grace and holiness as the supreme Christian. And we should really always look at Our Lady as our mother. She is our spiritual mother, Behold thy mother, and she is the mother of Christians, the mother of the church. She exemplifies what it means to be a Christian. And we could reflect for a long time on the mystery of the Annunciation. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Mary's response to God's invitation to bring about the salvation of mankind by being the agent of the Incarnation, the Mother of God. So Mary is obedient and faithful to the will of God, and through her mortal life and her obedience became an exemplar for all Christians. In the devotional life, what we do with her is we join our prayers with her as we ask for her prayers to God. We think, for example, of the rosary. The rosary is, in fact, a rehearsal of the gospel. What do we do in the rosary? We meditate upon the 15 principal mysteries of the gospel, and we contemplate the work and the person of Jesus Christ from his own incarnation until the final glorification of the church in heaven personified by Mary. Mary is the personification of the church. So all 15 mysteries reflect upon, meditate, contemplate the the 15 central events in the gospel. So we're actually praying the gospel when we pray the rosary. And that's just one example of what we do. I like to say that the idea of Marian devotion is the final frontier of the Christian life. It's going where some people have never gone before. <laughs> it's not going where no man has gone before. It's going where some people have never gone before. And I would say that they should. Fear not so, Mary. Fear not Mary. She is not to be feared. Remember uh, the word of the angel, fear not Mary? Well, we can change that to fear not Mary. There's nothing to fear, but there is much to love. There is no danger there. What we do when we ask for the gracious prayers of the Mother of God, when we ask for the prayers of the Blessed Virgin, we are asking for the prayers of a fellow Christian. In this case, however, we're asking for the fellow prayers of one who is absolutely unique because of her holiness and her obedience to God's will. Anglican hymnody and liturgy is replete with this. We think, uh, O oh, mo oh, Mother of the Eternal Word, Thou gracious, magnify the Lord. Hymn 599, Ye Watchers and Ye Holy Ones. 
And uh, she is the bearer of the eternal word, she is called there. Most gracious, magnify the Lord. That is what she is doing, magnifying the Lord. And when we join our prayers with her, we are magnifying the Lord in and through what God has done for her. We should try to see all Marian devotion in this way. Notice that most images of the Blessed Virgin in iconography always have her with her son. She is always pointing to Jesus. Mary is the throne of God. Christ is enthroned upon her as, a, as, a, as upon a throne. And so our devotion to Mary is always focused on Christ and doing his will. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And that's what we're called to do. But the rosary and the Hail Mary, these prayers have been hallowed by centuries of Christian usage, and they belong to the, the corporate life of the church through many centuries, hallowed usage. You might call it the apostolic succession of saints. All the great saints through the centuries have used these prayers, and they've been given to us, entrusted to us, because we know that they are part and parcel of our Christian vocabulary. They're part of the Christian lexicon, the way that historically Christians have prayed. And united to the saints, united to the Mother of God in heaven, our prayers, joined with all the angels and saints in the communion of saints, rise up before God and before the Lamb. It's very much an eschatological vision or image that we have in the book of Revelation. Now, I could talk about specifics if you like, but that's sort of an introduction to the idea. No, I think that's great. Um, I do know some people object to the rosary. It's people who, as you kind of say, perhaps do fear Mary a little bit. They fear that it detracts too much from Christ in some ways if there's a competition. And I know one place is where people will say, well, don't you, don't you see that in the rosary for every Our Father you say ten Hail Marys? Just by that you are outweighing prayer to God. Father Wesley shakes his head. But it, that's that's an objection, right? Just kind of if we were to put the prayers on a scale, you've got more to marry than to um, to, the, our, to our Father. Now, I've got an answer to that, but I'm sure you have one that's more immaculate than mine. So no, I don't think so. I seriously <laughs> doubt it. You know, when I was growing up, I would hear that that was <clears throat> vain ramblings or vain repetition. And the King James Version was invoked. This rosary is vain repetition. Well... If you think about it, the Hail Mary is very much a remembrance of the Incarnation. It's not detracting at all from what God has done. The Our Father, of course, is the greatest of all prayers given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ himself, teaching us the very nature of God and the nature of our relationship to God, and also teaching us the nature and the character of the relationship that we have to God, who is our Heavenly Father, Abba, Father. But the, the use of the Hail Mary in a sequence such as it is done is not some kind of outweighing of the influence or the authority or the effect or the, the power of the Lord's Prayer, but rather it, it sets the stage for our meditation upon the Lord's Prayer and upon the specific mystery that we contemplate in the Rosary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus, is all taken directly from Scripture. So we are tying those scriptural phrases to the mystery of the Incarnation, 
which is the way by which we say, Abba, Father. How is God our Father? Through Jesus Christ. And how does Jesus come to us? Through Mary, through the incarnation, through what happened in St. Luke chapter 1. That's how I would begin to answer the question. Yeah, well, I think that's great. Though uh, Father Kyle in the comments said um, one reason is, Father Miles, to answer your question, is that the Lord's Prayer weighs ten times that of the Hail Mary. There you go. I like yeah. that. That's, <laughs> that, that's is excellent. True. that is great. Yeah, I, just, I know some people, uh, such as this rosary given to me, uh, comes from a Lutheran pastor friend that I've met here in Knoxville. So there you go. But he does not pray the Hail Mary in its... I would say full form with the invocation for prayer at the end. He will either pray what he, I think it's a misnomer to call it this, the pre-Tridentine Hail Mary, which is just the first scriptural portion, but instead he prefers the Jesus prayer. And I think that is a laudable prayer and one that is definitely used much among the, uh, the Eastern churches and one that I use myself. But again, I think that perhaps at the, the fundamental distinction we have to make is that, as you said earlier, uh, you know, part of our devotion to Christ is, in some sense, our devotion to Mary. And so these things are not in competition. They're not in competition, not at all. In fact, the, the, the synthesis of Catholic faith is like a tapestry. The Catholic faith is a tapestry, and every weave in it, every strand, every string in it is woven together to create a beautiful image. And if we remove one strand or string of that tapestry, it is distorted. So when we have our traditional devotions, they are given to us by the authority and by the life and the, the living power and prayer of the church. She knows better than we do. One of the beautiful things about being an Orthodox and Catholic Christian is that we don't make these things up. They are given to us as a patrimony. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're not reinventing our devotions. Hallowed by centuries and by the use of saints and holy men and women, these things are commended to us, they are conveyed to us for our own spiritual edification as part of the patrimony of the church. We inherit these as gifts of the church's apostolicity. These are gifts of the church's apostolic life and prayer. We don't have to make these things up. And I think that's marvelous. I love the fact that there's no longer, for an Anglican Catholic, there is no private judgment. We can actually go to the fathers and, and they will share with us the wisdom of the, of the saints and the ages. Now, we have to learn it, and we have to apply it in our lives, but we don't have to invent it. And isn't it wonderful that we can inherit these things and use them in such a way? The Jesus prayer, by the way, is beautiful, the prayer of the heart, and Christians ought to use that prayer. But I think one should be just as comfortable using the traditional Western rosary with the Hail Mary as with the Jesus prayer and the, the, the prayer rope that is found in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Uh, by the way, St. Seraphim of Serov, who was a Russian Orthodox saint, prayed the Western rosary with the Hail Mary in the Western form, and he called it the rule of prayer of the Mother of God. And it is still used by some Eastern Rite Orthodox Christians. So even our rosary has a tradition in the East, just as we use, what's it called in Russian? The prayer rope? You remember, is it called a chokki? Yeah. Yes, uh, we use that, and I think that's beautiful. And the Jesus prayer, of course, is central to the philokalia, the, 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 the philokalia, the prayer of the heart and the saying of the Desert Fathers. And that's a beautiful tradition, which should be maintained, I think, by Anglicans as well.
But if we keep the Christocentric focus on our Marian devotion clear, there's nothing wrong with it. We clearly believe in dulia, we believe in veneration, in honoring the saints, we honor their memory, and we then worship God. And these things are clearly distinct. Yes. That's right. Well, I think that's all I have. I had a few other questions, but I think they've been answered throughout the course of the podcast so far. Father Wesley, do you have anything? Yeah, I think so. I think that's pretty much uh, everything that we have. That's great. Yeah. Is there any final comments from our viewers or listeners that they want to give a, a question regarding the Blessed Virgin Mary to Bishop Chad? Maybe we'll give you time to type those out as we go to our What We're Into segment. So, Father Wesley, what are you into these days? Yeah, so I have been really into the writings of Soren Kierkegaard in general, and uh, have always really liked him a lot, and uh, picked up his sermons preached at the communion on Fridays, uh, which he preached when he was younger, I think, uh, from my understanding of Kierkegaard. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode on confession um, that we released, and um, this sermon, that the, the most recent one that I read, had a lot to do with that. Uh, he's preaching on 1 John 3.20. He says, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And so I just wanted to read a section, if it's okay, uh, real quick, because I think this is really beautiful writing. His preaching is um, sort of classical Lutheran in the sense of law gospel, but then um, he has a sort of, I guess, theology of union and participation that I think that uh, that distinction has to be sort of paired with to make a whole lot of sense. So uh, this is what Kierkegaard says. He says, um, a penitent heart, when in contrition, it condemns itself. Yes, this heart allowed itself no rest, not for a single instant. It found no hiding place where it could flee from itself. It found no possible excuse, found it anew the most appalling excuse to seek an excuse. It found no, no relief, even the most compassionate word that the most compassionate inwardness was able to think up sounded to this heart, which dared not and would not let itself be consoled like a new condemnation upon it. So infinite is God's greatness in showing mercy, or it is even greater. It limps, this comparison, what is what a, that is what a human being always does after striving with God. This comparison is no doubt far-fetched, for it was found by piously rejecting all human likeness. If a human being dare not make for himself any image of God, then assuredly he does not imagine that human nature could be a direct comparison. Let no one be in too great a hurry in seeking. Let no one be precipitate in wanting to have found a comparison for God's greatness in showing mercy. Every mouth shall be stopped. Every person shall be breast. For there is only one comparison, after all, that is tolerable, an anxious heart that condemns itself. But God is greater than this heart, so be consoled after all. God is greater than your own heart. Oh, whether it was a sickness of the soul that so darkened your mind every night that finally, in deadly anxiety, brought almost to madness by the conception of God's holiness, you thought you must condemn yourself. Whether it was something frightful that so weighed upon your conscience that your heart condemned itself, God is greater. For he is greater than the heart that condemns itself. Mm. Oh, that's pretty good. I like that. Outstanding. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well. Great. All right. Let's see. So, Bishop, are you into something these days other than staying at home? 
Well, I've been reading the biography of Archbishop Houst de Blanc, who was the Archbishop of Cape Town of the Church of the Province of Southern Africa. And he was a great figure in the church, and he was my Episcopal great-grandfather. He was a consecrator of a consecrator and a wonderful figure who stood up for civil rights and for the rights of Christians and of all people in the South African regime back in the bad old days when you had the apartheid problems going on there. A wonderful book about a wonderful man. And I've been trying to read that in between Fox News and I will say that I have watched a couple of programs and movies during the coronavirus stay-at-home project, which were uh, very timely. Uh, if you haven't seen on Netflix Containment, it's about a deadly virus in Atlanta. That's very close to home. And if you haven't watched the movie Contagion, there is so much in that film right now that is e eerily echoing what is happening at the moment. And I find all of that very cathartic watching that so <laughs> i think it might give most people the fear and anxiety but i'm glad and it they, you, i think uh, it probably catharsis. does but I, I tend to incline to that kind of entertainment anyway so they've been very illuminating and entertaining movies and shows well good well i think that you both outdid me this time around uh from kierkegaard to biography i too have been into reading a certain book and that something of a confession it's dracula I, from a young age, have loved uh, just the concept of vampires. I don't know why. I thought that they were just great horror monster characters. Um, and I've always enjoyed a good vampire movie. I don't always endorse these movies, but I grew up in, you know, uh, high school, I would say. I love the Blade trilogy. I thought that they were just fun movies, and Wesley Snipe did a great job. But this is the first time I've ever picked up the classic, The Real Deal by Bram Stoker, Dracula, and read it. And, of course, it's very different. It's not a 1990s action film, and it's an underdeveloped concept of what a vampire is. But I really th think it's great, and I think there's a lot of interaction between faith and uh, kind of metaphysics, this desire for immortality as you feed upon blood. And so there's kind of this direct connection to the Eucharist. I mean, it's kind of a vampires are a counter-Christian in some ways. Uh, anyway, I just find it all fascinating, and I've, I've really enjoyed reading it. I'm probably halfway through by now, and it's, it's not the book I thought it was going to be, but it's still a good book. I'm going to have to send you, uh, I, I subscribe to a journal called the Hedgehog Review, and the most recent episode, or, um, issue was about monsters. And so I just finished a couple days ago reading an essay about uh, zombies and um, and uh, vampires and how they're sort of in relationship with each other. Yeah, well, and I, it goes back to way back to when we did that pagan Christianity episode. I made a quick mention there that there there is kind of these weird pagan impulses to consume blood, and that comes forward in the vampire, and then to consume human flesh comes forward in the zombie, and in some ways we those are. Uh, monstrosities of the real thing which finds fulfillment in the blessed sacrament that we do indeed consume sacramental body and blood real body and blood sacramentally uh, for our salvation for immortality so that is um anyway I just it's been it's been a great read so I think um, I think that it is time for us to wrap up Bishop thank you so much for thank being you. with us thank you. Oh, this has been an honor and a joy I'm so delighted to be with you this has been so much fun I yeah, will do this, this again great. 
And I think that this has been uh, a topic that our listeners, some have asked us here and there. So I think that on the whole, people are interested in this topic and they're interested in hearing someone who's firmly in the Anglican tradition answer it and kind of navigate the... Because people get so scared. If you start talking about Mary, you're automatically swimming the Tiber and becoming Roman. So I think that... um, I think this has been good and helpful. So thank you. It's been helpful for me. Thank you. I so appreciate this. I would say please to everyone watching, this is merely an introduction to the subject. We've only just barely touched upon it, but perhaps sometime we'll come back and devote an entire hour to specifics within the, the category of devotion to the Blessed Mother of God. And thank you for the privilege of being with you today. This has been a beautiful gift. Thank you. Absolutely. For sure. Well, dear listeners, If you like what we're doing, please help others find us by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. Go do that right now if you're live streaming and you haven't yet. Uh, Go to wherever you get your podcast. Share us with your friends, with your family. This is good stuff. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can follow us on Twitter and join our Facebook group and let us know what you think. And as always, you can email us back uh, your feedback or your show ideas at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. If you have further questions for Bishop, then you can email us and we'll make sure he gets those and answers them for you. And so, Bishop, will you lead us in the Hail Mary and then pr- pronounce the, the final blessing for us? Certainly, let us pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.